Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. We've uh, done 24 hours. I want to start by really honoring you. Just really am loving the quality of, of um, presence and willingness and courage that I'm, I'm sensing. You can tell through the groups. I mean, it's like we're, you've probably found that you've been through a lot of lives in even 24 hours um, from maybe wondering, why did I decide to come? <laughs> to maybe feel in wonder as you watch the, uh, the luminous rays of the sun from behind the clouds to all sorts of in-between. And one of the big wake-ups again and again and again is it does not matter what particular state is going on. What matters is the quality of presence or attitude that we're holding it in. So I start with a, a cartoon, and the setup here for this one is uh, praying mantis is on the psychiatrist's couch, okay? And, uh, it's like, and, and she's saying to the psychiatrist, honestly, doctor, I tried to keep the lines of communication open, but it was just so much easier to eat them, you know? <laughs> and I was thinking of how this just captures this real predicament that we all regularly face, which is kind of the limbic where we have this instant um, kind of want for gratification or relief and often act on that. You know, we shoot off the defensive email or we go for that second bowl of ice cream or whatever it is. You know, it's easier, more pleasurable. Or there's some little wake up and we go, oh, pause. Let me deepen attention. And that happens like, many, many moments through the day, and it really expresses these two evolutionary pulls that are always exerting a kind of calling on us. And one, if you think of it in terms of time, is from the past. It's all our most primitive conditioning, expressed through the limbic and accessed through our our behavior, it's all that very primitive conditioning to... um, hold on to what we want, to grasp on, to defend, to protect, uh, to try to get rewards from things. And it's very, very deep in us. It's this like path of least resistance that brings us satisfaction. And then the second pull, and again, I'm going to talk in terms of time, is really from the future. It's the pull of our evolutionary potential. It's the pull of our awakened heart-mind, that really, like a flower wanting to blossom, that really wants us to be all that we can be. There are these two poles. And so what I'd like to do, explore with you tonight, is the pull or the call of bodhicitta, that's the awakened heart-mind, which is really, you might think of it as your future self, your more awake or evolved self, just the calling of that, and how can we be more available? How can we respond to that? In other words, how do we deepen our relationship with bodhicitta? How do we take refuge in bodhicitta? And I purposely am saying bodhicitta instead of the Buddha, 
because I think that it's used so often, I'm going to take refuge in the Buddha, that we sometimes can glaze over. But what does it mean to take refuge in your own most awake heart and mind? Okay, so that's the inquiry. And we can see the poles in our personal life. I mean, every area that you feel a sense of stuckness or suffering or pain or squeeze, it's just those forces playing out. It's just that it's like the uh, like caterpillar in the cocoon. There's a squeeze because you're, everything in you is wanting to become and inhabit the fullness of your being, and it, there's all these habits of conditioning pulling you back. So we can see that, and we see that same squeeze, the same forces playing out in society all the time. The same two forces. I was, I've been really reflecting on this a lot, and you know, I was very, very stark just in the last week. Um, one, one force expressed a good friend of mine and of Laws and a number of other people perhaps here. Um, her son was held up by gunpoint and it was very very traumatizing and just to talk to her and sense what is it like to live in this culture an african-american woman always with that fear body of not knowing if your son's going to come back home that's the force of this primitive conditioning paying out in our culture through you know racial bias, injustice, and violence. And then I think of the same week I've been in touch with, um, very involved with a group called Minds, which again I know some of you are involved with, that um, offers mindfulness to teens in schools. And they've just gone over, I think, the 7,000 mark in terms of the D.C. area. What an amazing thing to have our children learning how to deepen their attention and not only to what's going on moment to moment inside them but they're teaching this in a relational way in circles so they're really engaged with learning how to be with each other. This is the calling of bodhicitta. Both forces are there and just to say not to turn primitive survival equipment we have into bad and the frontal cortex with its evolutionary potential into good If you think of the way the brain itself is designed, it's not like we're trying to eliminate (laughs) the brain stem or the limbic area. We need to feel attracted. We need to feel hatred, anger, fear. We need that stuff as kind of alerts. And if our identity is exclusively organized around our limbic system, then we don't get to experience the truth and fullness of our being. So the process of waking up is a process of really opening to a larger space of awareness and including and integrating the earlier structures and forms. So this is where meditation comes in. Evolution has designed us to get identified with a small, defended, fearful, grasping self, and also to wake up from that identification, to wake up from that identification to realize a larger sense of being. And evolution has given us strategies of paying attention to wake ourselves up. 
And that's what meditation is. So the praying mantis might not have been able to forego eating her partner, but we can make that choice on a good day. (laughs) Okay, a story um, that I love that illustrates the process by which bodhicitta wakes us up from a smaller sense of self to a beingness, uh, a beingness of uh, really awake awareness and heart. And this is a um, mythical story from Scandinavia that I've loved. I I share it once every few years. And in this story, a um, king and a queen, uh, their their kingdom has fallen on hard times, they're out of money, and they make a really pretty heavy-duty deal with the dragon who has a very rich kind of layer of lots of gold and exchange of some gold to buoy up the uh, kingdom for... um, the hand of their daughter in marriage. And they make this agreement, and it's, you know, it's an agreement the princess had a little bit of a hard time with, so, because here they say, we're going to marry you to the dragon, so she, but she's resourceful, so she goes to the very edge of the kingdom where a wise woman lives with uh, her, you know, 20 children and 40 grandchildren and asks her advice, and the wise woman uh, says, I think I know what we can do, and here's what you have to do on your wedding night, and the first thing you have to do is get a number of wedding gowns, in fact, ten. She whispers the rest of the instructions in her ear. Off she goes. Well, okay, so the wedding day comes, and it's a rough day. Let's just say it like it is. It's a rough day for the princess. The end of the day, the end of the, all the ceremony and celebrating, uh, they go to their chambers, and the dragon turns to the princess and says, So, dear, isn't it time to consummate our wedding? And... <laughs> She says, absolutely, dear husband. And then she says, but um, I, if I must do, to do so, I have to remove my wedding gown, and I have one small favor, and that is as I remove my gown, would you be willing to remove some of your scales? Joyfully, he said, I'd be glad to, because dragons are used to being able to you know, shed some layers. So she takes off the wedding gown. He had some decorative things on his dragon body. He gets rid of them. But to a surprise, he noticed she has another gown. So they have this agreement. She takes off her gown. He takes off some more scales there. And this goes on and on, okay? So he peels off another layer of his dragonness and four, five, six gowns. And he's clawing deeper and deeper into his flesh and skin. Eighth wedding gown off. And the dragon's down to taking off parts of himself that were stuck. And his form begins to change and... On the ninth gown, the form's changing more remarkably. And then when she takes off the tenth gown, he had really taken off so much of his dragonness that he, um, as it happens in these stories, turned into... You guys knew it. (laughs) And so she took the advice of the old woman from beyond the marketplace and had a night of wedded bliss. So that's the story. So what happened here? Really, the the princess is really the call of bodhicitta, of love. It's like the dragon only took his scales off for the sake of love. So she's calling him and saying, okay, let's, to have our connection, you've got to take off some scales. And what he discovers from taking off the scales is his own loving essence, which is the way it works, that we 
get this calling in us that really wants to come home. It's really the, the voice of longing is the voice of our awakened heart. That's calling us. And so we say, all right, I'll pay attention even though, you know, it's not so easy sometimes. And we pay attention and we bring as much kindness and presence as we can. We're kind of drawing on bodhicitta to pay attention, to release the scales. And the more that we pay attention, the scales become more transparent. It's not like we get rid of our ego. That's kind of a false idea. We get rid of our identification with our ego. So it can still operate and navigate the way we need to, but we know and remember the vastness and mystery and depth and tenderness of who we are, that bodhicitta. So this is kind of an an expression of how it happens, and I think Rumi describes it most beautifully when he says that your path is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers, scales, you've erected against it. And, he says, and to learn to love them. When I used to say that quote, I didn't have that last piece on it, but I was just on the West Coast at Spirit Rock, and a very dedicated Sufi guy said, it's a beautiful quote, but you're missing one of the most important parts. Not only to seek and find those scales and barriers, bring the light of awareness, but to love them, that that light of awareness is truly a loving light of awareness. We have to love the defendedness. That we have to love that that squeeze. And we have to love ourselves into healing. So this is what bodhicitta, our future self, is doing. It's calling us home, calling us to pay attention with love to what's here. Now, as we know, uh, there's a lot of challenges in the process. And I'm just going to name the, the obvious ones. That the challenge, the basic challenge is that we're very used to and identified with the um, habit patterns that come with the defended uh, self, the self that's trying to further its own interests. And so, you know, even though a part of us might know that's not who we are, we've, we just jump into the roles very quickly and play them out heard a story, um, and this is two guys, they both have, they have dogs and they're talking and they're deciding they want to get a cup of coffee at the cafe across the street, but one of them says, you know, they don't allow dogs and here we are. And one of the guys has a chihuahua, the other has a Doberman. And the guy with the Doberman said, ah, that won't be a problem, just do what I do. So he puts on the dark shades and crosses the street, goes into the cafe and the waiter says, sir, we don't allow dogs here. And he said, but this is my seeing eye dog. And the waiter said, but it's a Doberman. I said, oh, there's experiment now going on. It's working really well. So the, guy sho- the waiter shows him a seat. He sits down, and his friend across the street is nervous as get up. But he says, all right, I'm going to do it. So he puts on his shades, and he takes his little chihuahua, and he walks across the street. <laughs> so he walks in, and the waiter says, sir, no, no dogs allowed. And um, he says, yeah, this is a seeing eye dog. And the waiter says, sir, that's a chihuahua. And he goes, what? They gave me a chihuahua? <laughs> now, you might wonder what that has to do with this talk. 
First of all, I, got, I have to say that it was from Jonathan, my husband, and we have this thing about each other taking each other's material, so I want to honor that came from Jonathan. <laughs> we get identified. We get into our roles and we get stuck. And here's the thing. They're very largely unconscious. And it's really helpful to imagine a great circle, and that's awareness. And there's a line going through the circle. And everything that you're not aware of is below the line. Everything you're aware of is above the line. And what really matters is, are you living from below the line or above the line? In other words, right now, are you living in awareness? Are you living not aware of how the mind is getting identified or reacting or whatever? And what we find is that the big influences of the past are are coming are springing from the unconscious mind the limbic operates instantly and powerfully from the unconscious so we might move move through the world and think we're saying what's true but we're really exaggerating a whole lot and not realizing how we're just trying to present a certain self we're not aware of how many moments the way we are with each other is a way to get a certain response. It started so young that we were insecure about being okay as we are, that we cultivated these personas to elicit responses. And we have cover-ups that we're not aware of, the exaggerating or the ways that when we're anxious we pretend we're, we're okay. A physician described one of his wake-ups, it was very humiliating, he said as a young, newly graduated MD doing residency, he, he, he described he'd get really embarrassed when he was doing um, pelvic exams on female patients. It was really embarrassing. And to further his embarrassment, he had unconsciously formed this habit of whistling softly while he was performing them. You know, he was just trying to self-soothe, but he wasn't aware of it. So during one exam, a middle-aged woman uh, started laughing, like, she said something was hilarious to her and he got really embarrassed and he looks up from his work and he says sheepishly, you know, I'm sorry, was I tickling you? She, she had tears running down her cheeks and she was laughing so hard. She says, no, doctor, but the song you were whistling was I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. <laughs> so we're not aware a lot of the time. So, so it happens really quickly. We're not aware. And here's the challenge is that while our behaviors, the scales, are um, really stopping us from intimacy with others and intimacy with ourselves. They're really strong habits, and they keep playing. We've practiced them so many times, and one of the elements of them that's the strongest is that not only do we, are we identify with the scales, but we are aversive to our own scales. So the very ways we're trying to protect ourselves or further ourselves, we don't like ourselves for. This is the second arrow, right? And when we're not liking our own scales, that further solidifies them. They become even more opaque. It's harder to sense the truth of who we are. So we begin to look then at, well, how do we decondition when the patterning is so strong? How do we listen to the call of bodhicitta? How do we turn towards our future self, that, that love and that awareness? And 
the good news is that even when we're most stuck, there is awareness always and already here perceiving it. And the very pain of the stuckness helps to wake us up. And our practices here give us very um, direct ways when we're most forgetting to find our way back out of the habits into presence. And one of the reasons we teach RAIN, the acronym RAIN, is because it's an easy to remember way to activate mindfulness and compassion when we've gotten lost. It's like we can be really lost and it's the time when we least want to be mindful because we don't want to feel what's there and we're so confused we don't even remember the way back. And with that acronym, recognize, that's R, allow. So that's just like saying, okay, just recognize and allow what's going on. And the I is learning to investigate. It's not a mental, it's a investigate the felt sense, the I, and then nourish, N. With following this acronym, we're deconditioning the habit of the past. Every time you bring mindfulness and compassion to what's here, you're deconditioning the strength of that past habit. So we're looking at how do we activate bodhicitta? How do we turn towards it? And I'll share a story uh, from my own life that, that's kind of, um, to me, an example of getting stuck and the remembrance to turn towards turn towards bodhicitta. And it, well, first of all, the background to the story is when I met my husband, Jonathan, I was, at that time, I was running, uh, you know, five days a week, I'd be running three miles a day, and very, very active physically. And within two years of meeting him, I could barely walk up an incline, I could no longer swim. So all these things that we had kind of come together around that we were celebrating, that we loved to do, I couldn't do them anymore. And so I remember one point coming back from the Cape after a round of having been with friends and been the one that couldn't participate and feeling uh, really depressed. And I kind of found myself distancing from him, not connected, and the more I distanced, the more irritated and judgmental I felt towards him and towards myself. And um, I remember one particular day, I was on the hammock outside, and, um, and I got this wave of sadness. And it was this very pure sense of the pain of separation and the longing for connection. That was the calling of bodhicitta to deepen attention. That was saying, okay, there's something here you really need to pay attention to. So recognizing and allowing, okay, feeling cut off, depressed, let that be there. Then I began to investigate. And I often use that question, what am I unwilling to feel? Because it's a really powerful question. You know, when we get stuck, what am I unwilling to feel? It's not an intellectual question. It's like in the body, what's going on? What's the emotion? And I felt inwardly this kind of sinking 
ache, this fear, this vulnerability. And what I was unwilling to feel was a sense of ashamed that I was not the woman he married and that I would no longer be an attractive mate because I wasn't fun to be with. I wouldn't be fun to be around. So there was a mix of shame and this deep fear that, you know, this isn't going to work out. So that was the ouch. And at that time, I then, the, the deepest place of investigation when you're investigating inwardly is the inquiry, what does this place need? What's the unmet need? What, what, is, what is this vulnerable place most need in this moment? And it's usually some flavor or version of love and kindness. Sometimes it's just to recognize that I'm here, just to let me be here. Sometimes one person today, patience. Just let it be here. Let it have its own timing. It's usually some flavor of the heart. And for me, it was a a very much what it needed was a, a deep sense of care and presence. And so I did as I do. I put my hand on my heart and I breathed with it. And I felt the most caring part of me washing it through, saying, you know, sweetheart, I'm here. I care you're okay, it's okay, over and over. What happened in those moments was Bodhicitta called me, said, okay, separation, hurt, need to deepen attention. And then the deepening of attention brought me to this very vast, tender place where I was no longer identified as the ashamed, scared partner. That didn't mean the fear and the hurt and, the, and so on wasn't there. It's just my identity was resting in something larger, which is really the very essence of our practice here. We are waking up to be who we, are, who we really are and recognize that. Just to wind up the story with Jonathan is that I could talk. I still felt really vulnerable. It was really hard to name this out loud that I'm afraid you're not going to love me anymore. But that's what I was... I mean, I was afraid that, you know, he'd love me but not want to really be with me. And as happens, because I was so real, he was able to name how powerless he had been feeling and, and scared him. He was, he was scared that, um, that I wasn't going to make it because I was, I was that sick for a while. And um, it just brought us to a new level of connection, as happens when we get more real. Back to the praying mantis, it was easier to be irritated and distant for quite a while than to go into that vulnerability but we have to take off the scales. And I don't, again, it's not a take-off in a violent way. We need to wake up through them, be with them, feel what's under them. So there's a deep inquiry here of what are we really listening to. Are we listening to the voice of the past that believes something's wrong with me and I'm angry at this person and I don't like myself? Or are we listening to the call of loving presence that says, deep in attention, hon, pause, be here with what's here. Give you a, um, an example of the, because in a way these are, again, this is the pull of the past and the future. I um, have a, a good friend that 
after doing a three-month retreat at, at IMS, has stayed there and worked for a while at the Insight Meditation Society. And he was asked to write an article uh, for IBME, which is a fantastic organization that does teen retreats, another example of the evolution of consciousness. So, so he, wrote, he wrote it, and he sent me a copy, and he gave me permission to share a piece of it. And he described, he had this inner voice that was god-awful, relentlessly cruel. And he described how the first three weeks of the, uh, of the three-month retreat were unpleasant to say the least. He said, my mind constantly wandered, usually with self-deprecating fantasies. It berated me for not doing it right. Then he enters, this is, one, this is then what happened. On one day, he says, I was meditating. I got discouraged from the thoughts. A voice then sounded in my head. It's okay. You're doing great. It takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing. You're not alone. The unexpected wise voice spawned a river of tears. And the wondering if kindness and goodness in the voice could really be coming from inside me. I began letting go into the meditation. I felt the observer or the watcher dissipate as I became immersed into the bodily sensations. Now this letting go usually causes fear that I'll lose control and that something or someone will harm me. But I heard the wise voice say so reassuringly, it's okay, it's okay, let go, it's okay. I reluctantly trusted it, letting my guard down. The voice met my vulnerability with the mellifluous, there, you're not alone anymore. I lost it. I cried my eyes out. I fearfully wondered if this wise voice would ever leave me. I promptly heard, I'm not going anywhere. I lost it again. (laughs) The sheer kindness, wisdom, and support of the wise voice tapped the depths of my reservoir of tears. Then it hit me. Is this voice me? In the aftermath, for, this is Logan Thomas, because um, he gave me permission to share his name, I want to do that. For Logan, the aftermath, a lot of his practice was, am I listening, am I below the line? Am I living in that unconsciousness that's listening to and identified with a voice that's telling me, um, I can't trust other people, I'm not likable, I'm going to fail, something's wrong with me? Or am I living above the line? Am I occupying that place of awareness that's really listening to this voice that is kindness, is awakeness, is truth? You know, it's interesting because this is a practice and we're going to be exploring it in just a few moments that it's just a matter of over and over again turning the attention to what we perceive as the wisest, kindest place in ourselves, our future self, our evolved self. It's really just a practice, taking refuge in bodhicitta. And cognitive science backs it up in a really interesting way. When you evoke, if you invite yourself, if you say, "Ah, okay, high self, future self, Please guide me right now. 
What's your message? And if you invite that, or if somebody else guides you, if I say, bring to mind your highest, wisest self, cognitive science says that it's harder not to do that than to do that. It's like if I say, uh, don't think of a pink elephant. Once Once something is conjured, if it exists in your consciousness, it's harder cognitively to have the mind move away from it and turn away than it is just behold what's there. That's one piece. The other is that the more you turn towards what we might call our awake heart-mind or our future self, the more you're creating the neural pathways that can do it more and more quickly, more and more easily, whenever it comes to you. It's like the poet Hafiz says, ask the friend for love, ask him again, for I have found that every heart will get what it prays for most. To be in love with bodhicitta, to be in love with what is possible and keep turning towards it brings it alive. Now, What we're exploring here, really, is uh, a way of taking refuge that, I mean, there's many, many different variations. But I'd like to invite you just to experiment right now with, with one variation that I've personally found really valuable, and many people I know that have done it have found it. It gives them a way onward to keep on calling on what they most trust and love in themselves. So if you need to move around or shift, please do so, and then, and then come sitting still again. Sitting comfortably, closing your eyes, You might take a few long, deep breaths, filling lungs with the in-breath, and with the out-breath, that kind of releasing, relaxing outward, letting go. And again. And again. Letting the breath be in its natural rhythm. Imagine you could journey forward in time and encounter your future self. You might go 10 years or 20 years, depending on how old you are and how far forward you want to go. But let yourself engage with that, that you're moving forward in time. You're going to meet your future self, an older, awake, evolved version of your being, fully evolved. And just see, see where this future self is living. Let yourself 
see what they look like. And what the feeling of their presence is like. Yes, what's the quality of that presence, the quality of the listening, the way your future self looks at you, just the heart quality. Might let your future self know something that's going on in your current life that feels difficult, maybe to do with work or relationships, or how you are with yourself. Just ask for guidance. Just listening with an open heart, available. Before leaving, you might find out if there's any message your future self wants you to leave with that will serve you right here, right here, tonight, this weekend, in the moments of your current life. Take a moment to imagine the feeling and vision and wisdom and heart of your future self filling you. Just filling your cells and the spaces between the cells and your heart and your mind. Sensing the light and the warmth of bodhicitta and the possibility of remembering and connecting with this awakened heart-mind during daily life. So as you return to this moment and sense just what you're carrying with you, sense the calling and the presence and aliveness of your evolved self right here and now. Rumi says, sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you as a fish to out of water hears the surfs come back. This turn towards what you deeply love saves you. 
this turn towards what you deeply love saves you. So opening your eyes. This is one pathway of taking refuge. And as I mentioned before, the more you practice it, the more you kind of cultivate the neuropathways that both correlate with your frontal cortex, which has to do with the, the whole cluster of neurons that have to do with compassion, empathy, it's a site of mindfulness. It actually cultivates and activates that just by turning towards that light of your future self or bodhicitta. And speaking personally, I, um, I do this all the time. You know, I find uh, you know, on some level I very, very often notice, oh, in living in something small, I sense I'm below the line. And my way of waking up will in some way be, I'll actually imagine like an awareness that's from the corner of the room kind of shining down on me and then sense it in front of me and around me and and just sense it, okay, so this is the presence of my future self or my more awake heart mind and and really just call on that to really fill me. So I And then just try to sense from the perspective of my most awake heart mind, how I really want to relate to what's going on right here. And it's a very uh, quick, powerful, and profound way to shift out of an identity with a small self and reoccupy a vaster, deeper presence. It gets quicker and quicker, so it's not so many steps of, okay, there's a future self out there, bring it in, meet, what are you wearing, what do you look like? It gets very quick that there's just even a remembrance of, okay, there's an awakened heart-mind, what's the perspective? How is my awake heart-mind experiencing this moment? Very powerful. So in this talk, we're exploring refuge in bodhicitta, and the given is that every one of us in this human body gets caught in the energies of fear and confusion, anger, jealousy, insecurity. So what we're doing is we're learning to cultivate a relationship and that's, what it, that's what's involved. It's you're really having a relationship with your more recently developed uh, mind with your more primitive mind, or with bodhicitta, with your small self. This is how Rilke puts it. God speaks to us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by, your seri- by its seriousness. Give me your hand. 
So we reach out, we hold hands with our future self, with bodhicitta. Now, the really good news is no matter how stuck we are, how small we are, it's always and already here. It shines through all life everywhere. We can see it in children. I mean, we can see this light in children. I, somebody handed me this some, a while ago. I love it. It's how children respond to the question, what does love mean? I'll just read you a few of their responses. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. When, you're, when you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared that they won't love you anymore, but then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. Just two more. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it, but if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. <laughs> when you love someone, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. This loving awareness shines through all of life. It shines through us and through all beings. I was very struck some years back. I read a story, Rachel Naomi Remen, who's a physician, wise woman, writer, wrote, um, that kind of captured this. And she described how uh, this man named Tim's father had Alzheimer's disease. And despite the devoted care of Tim's mother, he had slowly deteriorated until he had become kind of walking vegetable. So he was unable to speak, and he was fed and washed and cared for as if he was a very young child. So here's what she writes. She says, one Sunday while Tim's mother was out doing the shopping, uh, time his brother, Tim and his brother, then 15 and 17, watched football as their father sat nearby in a chair. Suddenly he slumped forward and fell to the floor. Both sons realized immediately that something was terribly wrong. His color was gray and his breath uneven and rasping. Frightened, Tim's older brother told him to call 911. But before he could respond, a voice he had not heard in 10 years, a voice he could barely remember, interrupted. Don't call 911, son. Just tell your mother that I love her. Tell her that I'm all right and Tim's father died. So Tim was a cardiologist, and you know, they had an autopsy, and this man's brain was almost entirely gone, destroyed by the disease. And so he was describing how hard it was for him to have an explanation. And all we can say is that beyond this physical body, there is a source of awareness and love that's a mystery, and yet it lives through us. So the final piece I'd like to name is that in taking refuge, every time we call on our future self and are in some way uh, held in that, it deepens our trust that that's who we are. And it's the same thing when we see others and we have the eyes to see 
the light in them, that every time we in some way let another person know, it's like we're like being the future self or bodhicitta, bringing it out of, out of them. Thomas Merton says, saints are what they are not because their sanctity makes them admirable to others, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. So saints are viewing it, all other beings through that, that, those eyes that can see the evolved heart-mind, mirroring goodness. Now, a final word on the use of my future self. This is now Buddhism. Ready? <laughs> this is a little Buddhist thing. It's an incredible skillful means. But if you take the words future, what we're experiencing is happening right here. There's no future. When you went in and said, okay, so, you know, what's the message? Or when you said, you know, okay, let me try to feel that awakeness and love of my future self to the extent that you just feel that light and the who you really are. It's, there's no future. It's just an idea, but it's a useful idea. But you can't experience that love and wisdom unless it's already here. Then there's the self part of it. If you really start opening to that sense of bodhicitta, that loving presence, you can't find a self. There's no ego structure. There's no center. There's no container. It's just a field of loving presence. Just awake awareness. Then there's the my part of the equation. (laughs) There's nobody owning it. It's like when you say my future self, who's owning it? What we're really coming home to is the field of loving presence that's the source of all these bodies and all these forms. One, one, one. It's our collective refuge of bodhicitta. So I'd like to do a final just a brief reflection of taking refuge in this way. Invite your attention right here. Feel the body from the inside out vibrating, tingling, aliveness. Feel how that aliveness is at the heart. from the sincerity of your heart to call on that which is true, this most awake expression of your being, this open-heartedness, tender-heartedness, awake awareness. Your future self, right here, 
sense how it expresses and lives through you right this moment. How life is experienced by your awakened heart this moment. You might bring a a dear one to mind, somebody you care about. Sense how your awakened heart experiences this being. Letting this dear one float in the space, in the heart space that's here. that if you're looking through the eyes of wisdom and with the heart of wisdom, sensing the goodness that lives through this being. The brightness, the aliveness, the tenderness, the decency, integrity, honesty, the light. You might imagine letting this person know in some way their goodness, what you see. Just notice what happens. Sensing how your awakened heart-mind experiences the life that's right here. Life that we call self. With the natural patterns of vulnerability, challenges, physical pain, the hurts. And also the longings the yearning to wake up, to heal and be whole and to live from that love. So viewing this life form here and the wisdom and love, the awakeness of your own most evolved being offering blessings, whatever you most want to offer to yourself. And sensing how this evolved heart-mind, this vast heart-space includes all beings holds the earth, our mother, in our laps and all beings in our heart. 
just relaxing out, resting in this vast ocean of loving presence that cherishes this changing life. The blessing of this path is to realize and trust this love and this light as the very essence of what we are. Namaste and blessings. And thank you for your attention, for your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.